Hello, and welcome to the Starfield bonus episodes. I'm your host, Hannah Marker. As part of our partnership with Astronomy State of the Art, we bring you Q&A sessions with Dr. Chris Impey. In these episodes, Dr. Impey answers live questions brought to us by our listeners, talking about topics in astronomy, what's happening in the astronomy community, the news of the day, and much more. Okay, welcome everyone. Um, I'm talking to you from London today, and for the next six months I'll be in London on sabbatical working at Imperial College, which is my alma mater. I was here as an undergraduate, I don't even want to say how long ago, but a very long time ago. Um, and it's a great place for science and technology. I'm working on astronomy projects and communication projects, and with our new method of uh, capturing this audio and video stream, we're going to keep doing our live sessions pretty much as usual. Um, so we appreciate your patience if we have any technical glitches. And since it is London, I don't need to tell you that if I look to my side outside the window, it is indeed raining and gray and cloudy and cold. London in the winter, no surprise there. I'm ready for your questions. All right, our first question is from someone who is on with us live uh, who asks, Comets are made of ice and dust, so it makes sense that they lose material when they are close to the sun. How come asteroids that are made of rock mostly also release material when near the sun? Uh, it's a good question. And, and so the distinction between uh, primarily rocky and primarily icy material is a little bit arbitrary. Um, so, uh, you know, comets are more icy in the spectrum of rocks and ice, and asteroids are more rocky. But both contain icy or volatile material, frozen volatiles, which of course includes carbon dioxide as well as water ice uh, and methane ice and so on. Uh, now in the cycle, the history, the life cycle of a comet, if it's an Earth-crossing uh, asteroid or a Sun-approaching asteroid on a tight orbit of the inner solar system, then the sun will uh, ablate material, the volatile material, off the comet, and so it will gradually lose uh, its icy material. It'll be just boiled off or evaporated off. Uh, and sometimes, since that material acts to bind the comet, the comet can fall apart and disintegrate because of that over time. But basically, the comet that comes close to the sun on a periodic orbit will gradually be baked dry. Now, asteroids are mostly uh, beyond the ice line, and so they do have frozen material, but they're more dry, typically by weight or by volume, be 70 or 80 percent rock and only 20 percent volatile material. But there's a continuous range. There are fairly icy asteroids, and there are very dry asteroids. There are comets that are extremely icy with a small amount of rock, and there are some that have been baked dry by periodic passage close to the sun. Uh, ready for the next question? All right, our next question is from Michael, who's on with us live, who asks, if I'm in a car traveling at the speed of light and I turn headlights on, does anything happen? Uh, it's a good question. Uh, it's, of course, an impossible question. So physics does like thought experiments. Uh, a lot of progress in physics during the era of relativity, for example. Einstein used thought experiments extensively, as did other theoretical physicists. Um, it's a good way to test out ideas with a hypothetical situation. Now, in the context of relativity, no object except light itself can travel at light speed. So the hypothetical 
of traveling with a car at light speed is physically impossible. So it's against the laws of physics. So the, so the scenario can't happen. Essentially, it would take an infinite amount of energy to accelerate a real physical object, uh, a small particle even, or a grain of sand, forget about a car, to the speed of light. But let's just modify the question slightly and imagine that somehow, with vast amounts of energy, you could accelerate a car to 90 or 95% of the speed of light, a relativistic velocity. What would happen then if you turned on the headlights? And the answer in relativity is that the photons would appear to, from your perspective in the fast-moving car, would appear to leave uh, your headlights at the speed of light, 186,000 miles per second, um, as they would if the car were at rest, and that's the nature of relativity. However, as seen by a stationary observer, say you're approaching a stationary observer with your car moving at close to the speed of light, that person would arrive, would see the arrival speed of the photons from your headlights also at 186,000 miles per second, or the speed of light. Uh, and that's because time is being distorted in this relativistic situation. The clocks carried by someone, yourself, say, in a very fast-moving car, would be running incredibly slowly. And so when you use that distortion of time combined with the constancy of the speed of light and also compression of distance, the car moving at that speed would be heavily squashed in the direction of motion, uh, literally distorted by relativity itself, then it all works out, the math works out. And regardless of the observer, the speed of light is seen as the same speed, c, 186,000 miles per second or 300,000 kilometers per second. Ready for the next question? All right, our next question is from uh, Johan, or Johan, um, who is from Colombia, who asks, what is quantum tunneling? Uh, quantum tunneling is a phenomenon that is entirely beyond classical physics. So it's a phenomenon that requires uh, quantum mechanics or the quantum theory of matter to understand it. In quantum tunneling, in, in classical physics, for example, there can be a barrier caused by an electrical or magnetic field uh, which, if a particle doesn't have sufficient energy to overcome the electrical barrier, the particle is kept out. So the barrier is completely impermeable. Uh, and this is simple classical physics. For hundreds of years, this has been true. In the quantum realm, it emerges that because particles have an extent, they're not point sources, the electron, the proton, any particle is not a point source but has some quantum extent, some probability of it being in a variety of places as opposed to one particular place, the math of that when this particle approaches a barrier is that the particle has a very slight probability that some part of it will actually penetrate the barrier. And that transmits into a very slight probability that a set of particles in that situation, a very small fraction of them will actually penetrate the barrier and go to the other side, even though individually none of them have a mean energy high enough to cross the barrier. So this is completely alien to classical physics. What this means is that particles can penetrate barriers where ostensibly they don't have the energy to do so, just by purely quantum effect. Now this quantum tunneling effect uh, is the basis of the Josephson junction. Brian Josephson won a Nobel Prize in physics, I think in the 1970s or 80s, for understanding how quantum tunneling might operate in electronic components. And modern electronics, the basis of our computer technology and our information technology, actually uses 
uh, not just Joseph's injunctions, but a whole set of devices where quantum tunneling is in operation. Essentially, our modern electronic world would not function unless quantum tunneling was the case, and that quantum tunneling can only be understood in terms of the quantum theory. Ready for the next question. Excellent. Our next question is from Marvel, who asks, how can a geologist work in space sciences? It's actually quite easy for geologists to move into that field because it's not far. Um, there are obviously in terms of planetary exploration, NASA is doing a lot of planetary exploration, uh, either robotic probes that we're sending to outer parts of the solar system or to the moon or to Mars uh, need geologists to interpret the data. Um, Maybe most geologists obviously uh, learn by studying the Earth and the Earth's rocks and the Earth's situation. But the geological worlds we see around us in space are subject to the same laws of geology, the same methods, and the same techniques. And so geologists can equally well work on Mars as they can on the Earth uh, or on the Moon or on the Earth in terms of remote data. And if, of course, if when we set up bases on Mars and the Moon, geologists will be a very important component of the scientific teams that go there. So geologists definitely can work on planetary science, and increasingly, geologists can also work in the field of exoplanets. So for a long time, as exoplanets were being discovered in larger and larger numbers, we knew very little about them. We simply knew their orbits, we might know their sizes, we might know their masses, and that's pretty much all. But in the modern era, an increasing fraction of the exoplanets are starting to be characterized such that we can talk about whether they're rocky worlds or icy worlds or even metallic worlds. We can talk about their climate. We can begin to talk about their atmospheres and their geology. And so in the future, uh, geologists will actually have a significant role to play in the science of exoplanets. Um, the boundaries between these scientific fields of astronomy, geology, planetary science, and atmospheric science are starting to break down as we study more of these worlds in space. That's ready for the next question. Okay, our next question comes from Russell, who is on with us live, who asks, what limits the speed of light to 3 times 10 to the 8th meters per second? Do we understand why this velocity is the universe's speed limit? Um, it's a good question, and in the theory of relativity and the central insight of Einstein, the constancy of the speed of light actually becomes a hypothesis, it becomes a premise. Uh, and of course, the ironic thing about making the constancy of the speed of light a premise of relativity and then looking at what the implications of that premise would be for relative motion, you actually take away the ability to explain why the speed of light itself is the physical limit. So unfortunately, a simple answer to the question is no, we don't know why the speed of light itself, this very particular number, uh, is a physical limit to speed in the universe. We just know that operationally, if it's perceived, if it's uh, recognized as being a physical limit, with objects can approach that speed but never exceed it, then we can explain the behavior of subatomic particles, we can explain the behavior of physical objects that we accelerate to large speeds, and so on. So it's a very successful description. Is it possible that in another universe, imagine the multiverse theory is correct and there are other parts of space-time with different laws of physics, is it possible that in those other worlds, those other universes, the speed of light might not be the same number or might not be constant at all? Yes, I guess it is. Our physics is particular to this universe. Ready for the next question. 
All right, the next question is from Mohammed, who is on with us live, who asks, as we know, uh, time is calculated depending on, it, on the place, so how can we calculate the time in space between planets or between places? So I think it's a relativity question about simultaneity. Yes, this is actually becoming um, less of an esoteric theoretical question, more of a practical question. Um, as we start to move around the solar system, as we send more than a handful of space probes to the outer solar system, as we build uh, satellite networks, for instance, eventually orbiting the moon and the Mars, as well as the Earth, then keeping time in space within the solar system or scattered around the solar system becomes quite important. Uh, for example, there's another where, place where this is important, and this is the interplanetary internet. So. As we start to send data around the solar system, as we explore these new worlds, as people work in space and have to send data to and fro from the Earth and between remote locations, then having an internet that works and keeps time accurately becomes important. So all of this, of course, is done with light signals. And those light signals have to be transmitted from point A to point B. And those light signals, of course, because of relativity, uh, uh, include the relative motion of the objects from which they're transmitted. So the moon is moving relative to the Earth, Mars is moving relative to the Earth, and that relative motion impacts the light travel time between those objects. So relativity explains all of this, and if we start to use general planetary uh, travel, then these timings will actually have to be quite precisely determined. It's already the case with the GPS satellite network. So these are objects in orbit around the Earth that are designed to produce high precision position accuracy. And that precision only works if you include relativity in the calculations of how the signals are bouncing from the Earth's surface to the moving satellites. So the solar system will present just a larger scenario like this. Ready for the next question. Excellent. Our next question comes from... Uh, Tavinder, who is on with us live, who asks, can you explain the mystery of the Methuselah star that was measured as being older than the age of the universe? Um, yes, I think it's that was an uncertain measurement, and there's now no conflict with cosmology. Um, Measuring the age of the universe is based on a model of the expansion rate going back in time and what the contents of the universe are, because projecting the expanding universe back to an origin point 13.8 billion years ago uh, depends on knowing how much dark matter and dark energy there is in the universe. Those cosmic numbers are fairly well determined, so the age of the universe in cosmology is a fairly well determined number with a precision of a couple of percent. The age measurement of any star, including the Methuselah star, is much less certain. Uh, it is difficult to measure the age of a star without knowing its mass fairly accurately, and that's the hardest thing to measure for an individual isolated star. In a binary, it's easier, but for a single star, it's hard. Uh, and it also depends on a theory of stellar evolution to know the age of a star. So since the age and the mass of a star are the hardest things to measure, um, we don't have very accurate measurements of those numbers. And I think the current uh, conventional wisdom with a number of research groups working on it is the Methuselah star is indeed an extremely old star from probably the first generation of stars that formed after the Big Bang, but it doesn't present a conflict with cosmology. Ready for the next question. 
Our next question comes from a live viewer who asks, uh, will the universe continue to expand forever or will the expansion stop and everything collapse backwards? For a while in cosmology, there were these two scenarios on the table. Uh, the fact that the expanding universe might have sufficient uh, matter in it, since we know there's a lot of dark matter as well as the visible matter that we're made of, that that matter would have been sufficient not only to decelerate the expansion, which has been happening for a period of billions of years, but eventually to overcome the expansion rate and lead to a contraction and eventual collapse into a mirror image of the Big Bang. Um, that scenario was on the table until probably the mid to late 1970s or the early 1980s, when it became clear that the matter content of the universe was really insufficient to stop the expansion. This got even stronger, this argument, in the 1990s when dark energy was discovered, because dark energy is causing the expansion rate to accelerate or increase, or the, rather the size of the universe to increase at an accelerating rate. Uh, so with the dark matter insufficient to overcome the expansion rate, and with dark energy causing stuff to move apart even faster, ever faster, um, it's almost certain that the universe will not recollapse and that it will continue to grow larger and colder forever. Ready for the next question. Excellent. Uh, the next question comes from Kim, who is on with us live, who asks, if a star explodes, or when a star explodes, where do all the particles go? When a star explodes, as for example a supernova, um, the expansion rate and the energy of the explosion is sufficient to liberate the material from the star, from the gravitational field of the star. Uh, in other words, it has more than the escape velocity. Uh, so these particles, these blast waves that go out from a supernova are moving uh, not just supersonic speeds, but at relativistic speeds, significant fractions of the speed of light. So, so particles moving extremely fast. Uh, so that material is essentially lost from the star forever. It does eventually decelerate and slow down because the vacuum of space between stars is not absolute. There's a very small number of particles, maybe a few protons per cubic meter in interstellar space. And so the blast wave from a dying star does plow into a very diffuse medium. It slows down, it heats up, and that's what leads to a supernova remnant, which glows in x-rays. And so that's sort of how we know where dying stars are, because we see the decelerating blast waves uh, moving through space hundreds or even thousands of years after the star dies. But the star's material is lost forever, and what's left behind is a compact collapsed core that's the stellar remnant, uh, which is... In the case of a large star, a massive star is going to be a black hole. In an intermediate case, it's a neutron star. And occasionally, the detonation is perfect, and therefore, there's nothing left behind. Typically, a massive star will lose something between a third and 80% of its mass in the explosion. So what's left is a small fraction of the initial mass of the star. Ready for the next question? Okay, our next question is from Morrow, who's on with us live, who asks, when we see an object such as a quasar that is 8 billion light years away, how do we explain the distance that the light has traveled when 8 billion years ago the universe would have been much smaller? Yes, you can uh, tie your head up in knots thinking about this because it is complicated. So when we talk about an object that's 8 billion light years away, we mean we are seeing the object as it was 8 billion years ago. 
So that is the time that light has taken to travel to the universe. And so we're seeing that object as it was uh, when the universe was a lot younger. In the case of 8 billion light years, that's the universe as it was when it was about a third of its current age. So that's the age uh, part, which is fairly simple because light travels at this constant speed as we've been discussing before. And so we look back in time by the light travel time. Now the distance of that object, that's a different matter entirely because as the questioner notes, the universe was smaller when the light from that object was emitted. And the universe has been expanding since that light was emitted at an originally uh, decelerating rate with dark matter dominant and then eventually at an accelerating rate in the last four or five billion years since dark energy has taken over. So when you calculate the distance of an object whose light is eight billion years old, that distance actually ends up being substantially more than eight billion light years. So the distance of an object we see where the light is eight billion years old can be, depends on the math of the uh, cosmology calculation, but it's typically twice as much. It may be something like 15 or 16 billion light years away. Uh, another consequence of this distinction it caused because the universe was expanding initially faster than the speed of light is that even though the universe is less than 14 billion years old, the distance to the most distant object we can see is about 39 billion light years, you know, something like three times the age in billions of light years, which seems like a contradiction until you recall that the universe has been expanding faster than light for the early part of its history. Ready for the next question. Thank you. Um, our next question is from Divyansh, who asks, what is the reason behind the gravitational pull of the black hole, and what's the reason behind the, the, it having such a strong gravitational pull? The gravity of a black hole is, uh, is a function of its density, essentially. Um, at a large distance from a black hole, the gravity just takes the value you would calculate in Newton's theory. In other words, if, if the sun were instantaneously compressed to a few kilometers across its Schwarzschild radius and took the formal definition of a black hole, at the distance of the Earth, the gravity force we'd feel here would be unchanged. And in fact, if that hypothetical happened, the sun being squashed overnight or suddenly into a black hole of the same mass, the Earth would continue unperturbed in its orbit. So the gravity force a far distance from a black hole is no, is no higher than the gravity force from a normal star, say, or a less dense object. When you get closer to the black hole, obviously the gravity increases, and it's an inverse square law. So the gravity force in Newtonian theory goes up as the inverse square of the distance. Two times closer, the force is four times higher. Three times closer, it's nine times higher, and so on. When you get very close to the black hole, the gravity force continues to increase, but also the actual amount of gravity can only be calculated using general relativity that, rather than Newtonian theory. And so that's why black holes have incredibly intense gravity, because their densities are so high that the forces close to the black hole are unprecedented. They're far greater than the gravity force anyone could experience near any normal star. Ready for the next question. Um, the next question comes from Karen, who is on with us live, who asks, 
I am interested in becoming an astrobiologist, and I'm wondering what kind of undergraduate degree I should follow. And also, this might be a good chance to mention our upcoming uh, course. Yes. Um, I'll put that in first, even. We are about to launch, very soon, within a couple of weeks, uh, a new uh, MOOC, an astrobiology MOOC, massive open online course uh, through Coursera. That's the provider. Um, Matthew, you're going to have to remind me the name, the title of our course, because I always forget it. Right. It's a, it's a general astrobiology course, but we are giving particular prominence to exoplanets, because that's sort of the hottest field in, in astronomy, as well as astrobiology. So, that, so that's the course. You can search for it, obviously, by my name as well. And uh, I highly recommend it. We put a lot of work into it. I think it's a good course. Um, as for training to become an astrobiologist, astrobiology is a niche field. I would say it represents less than 10% of all professional astronomers are working in astrobiology. Um, but it's not a trivial field, and it's a growing field. It's obviously very exciting research right now. The training of most astrobiologists at the moment that are working in that field was astronomy. So most astrobiologists started their careers in astronomy, and that typically means for undergraduates that they actually started in physics and then moved to astronomy in grad school and then became interested in astrobiology and moved into that field. That's the classical path, but there are many deviations from that path, and there are many exceptions to the, that general rule, and, and I've known many of them. I've had students who are some of them. We have some of them working at Stewart Observatory. So it's by no means impossible to come to astrobiology by a different route. Um, obviously, astronomers and physicists don't tend to take a lot of biology, so when they go into astrobiology, they have to add it on. They have to take graduate courses in biology, which is hard if they study physical science at college, uh, or just learn the field on their own. So a biologist going into astrobiology has some strong advantages. They, by contrast, would have to probably add to their physics and math background to be able to be successful in those fields, or perhaps their chemistry background. So there are different paths into astrobiology. And in fact, as the field matures, I think the role of, of biologists, people trained primarily in the life sciences, will actually increase. And more of those people will become professional astrobiologists. At the moment, it's not a very popular option or choice for a biologist to become an astrobiologist as opposed to an astronomer becoming an astrobiologist, which is pretty popular and, and is considered a, a successful and advantageous way to position yourself in the job market. Right to the next question. Okay, and then apparently some people did not hear the name of the course um, when I uh, mentioned it, so I'll say it again, and the name of the course is Astrobiology Exploring Other Worlds. Okay, so our next question is from a live viewer, from Kushal, who asks, um, why is the gravitational wave amplitude of supermassive black holes so high, and why do we need sensitive equipment to detect it like pulsar timing arrays? So the amplitude of gravitational waves from supermassive black holes is high simply because they represent very large masses. So when uh, binary supermassive black holes merge, which will happen when two massive galaxies merge, since we know that every galaxy has a black hole in it, uh, you're, co you're combining masses 
each of which is millions of times larger than the kind of black holes that LIGO observed merging. So obviously the perturbation in space-time caused by these enormous masses uh, merging is, is going to be substantial. So, so the amplitude simply goes with the mass at some level. Now the other part of the issue, and of, it relates to the sensitivity and how these experiments are carried out, is the time scale. The orbital and merger time scale of supermassive black holes is also scaling with the mass of those objects. And so that time scale is, in the case of massive black holes, much longer than for stellar mass black holes. So while with LIGO we saw these classic chirp signals, as they're called, this crescendo of frequency of gravity waves moving from a few hundred hertz up to about a kilohertz as the objects merge, in the case of massive black holes, those frequencies are millions or even billions of times lower. So instead of a thousand hertz, you have one millionth of a hertz, or maybe a hundred thousand or ten thousandth of a hertz. That is one oscillation in an hour or in a day, as opposed to hundreds of oscillations in a second. That's an incredible difference. And that difference is what makes the detection of gravitational waves from supermassive black holes exceptionally challenging. So the amplitude is substantial because the masses are substantial, but the time scales are extremely long, which requires incredible stability of whatever instrument is doing this work. It also means that this work has to be done in space. There's no terrestrial gravity wave detector that can possibly detect the extremely slow gravitational waves that result from massive black holes. This will have to be done with interferometers in space and LISA. Uh, an acronym for one of these space antenna interferometer systems being developed by the Europeans and the Americans is the classic experiment that we hope to launch. It'll probably take 10 or 15 years for that to be put up there, but it will be the experiment to detect these. And as the questioner alluded, there's a more indirect method which may have success before that uh, using pulsar rays. As gravitational waves pass over a pulsar, they subtly alter its spin rate or its angle of tilt in the sky. Uh, and using a network of pulsars, in principle, you can watch the passage of gravitational waves subtly altering the properties of a pulsar array. Those pulsar array experiments exist at the moment because we know of thousands of pulsars and the timing experiments of their pulses are extremely precise, a few parts in 10 to the 17. Uh, so that is a possible way we might detect these gravitational waves even within the next five or six years. Ready for the next question. Excellent. Our next question is from Mustafa, who is on with us live, who asks, how can the space-time continuum expand when it is not an entity in itself, but just a mathematical tool we use to describe events happening in our universe? It's a good question because we're used to the idea of concrete objects, you know, physical objects that have a physical size and they might expand, or, you know, like a balloon expands or uh, metal expands when you heat it up. So that expansion and contraction is well understood. How can nothing expand? It's a good question. Uh, so, however, while space-time is essentially a mathematical construct, in the theory of general relativity, it's a mathematical description of something that has physical reality. In other words, to a relativist and to an astronomer or an astrophysicist, space-time is real. It's something that we inhabit, we occupy, we can measure its properties indirectly by tracers of that 
space. So galaxies, for example, as they move apart from each other and measure it as a redshift, they are essentially tracers of expanding space-time on large scales. And we've been using the properties of galaxies, their redshift in particular, to measure the properties of expanding space-time for a century. So it's a pretty routine astronomy uh, to use physical objects like galaxies to be tracers of something that's invisible called space-time. But all of the evidence we have from those experiments is that space-time is a, a real physical thing. It's just a vacuum. It's just not physical or concrete in that way. Ready for the next question. Okay, our next question is from Manuel who asks, what is a parallel universe and could there potentially be ones that contain doppelgangers of everyone on Earth? Well, that's a scary thought. Um, I think one Earth is quite enough. Uh, yes, parallel universes are a very theoretical construct. There's no evidence they exist, so I should be clear and say that right out front. Um, in the expanding universe model, when we trace it back to the origin, and in particular the fact that it's likely or possible to have been a quantum event that led to, led to our expanding space-time that we occupy along with the hundreds of billions of galaxies, in that construct it's possible that there were other quantum events leading to other space-times distinct from our own. And that's the gist of the multiverse idea. And so these universes are parallel in the sense that uh, they don't intrude upon ours, and there's no obvious way from within our expanding space-time to measure their properties or even their existence. And that's why many astronomers are simply skeptical of the idea, because they say, well, how can we possibly test it when we can't see these other space-times? So it's a theoretical idea that has some traction in the theoretical community, has some interest. It's elegant in some way because it addresses the quantum origins of our universe, but it's not clear that it's testable in the sense of these parallel universes being things we can understand. And I suppose to address the second part of the question, if there were uh, parallel universes with sufficiently different properties, then just by statistical arguments, it's possible that eventually, with a large enough number of them, there could be universes in which uh, there are great similarities to our universe, including potentially doppelgangers, you know, completely identical Earths to ours and situations that have played out on those parallel universe Earths like our Earth. So if you create a sufficiency of number of experiments, then you can always hypothesize that two of the experiments are exactly identical down to the tiny details. I think that pushes the idea beyond its breaking point, however. Ready for the next question. Excellent. Our next question is from Nikita, who asks, can you please explain cosmological redshift? So cosmological redshift is the redshift that we see when we observe galaxies, essentially all receding from us. Uh, it's distinguished from the Doppler shift because the Doppler shift refers to relative motion within a frame of reference. So, for example, within the solar system, we can talk about things that move around the solar system relative to the Earth or relative to the sun or relative to some fixed benchmark. In the universe itself, there is no benchmark because the entire universe is expanding. And so we look at the relative motions of things in terms of expanding space-time, and that's the cosmological redshift. So the cosmological redshift, 
cosmological redshift is not due to relative motion of two objects, it's due to two objects increasing their separation due to expanding space-time. That's the gist of cosmological redshift. And when Hubble measured the redshift of galaxies, he didn't speculate as to what the theoretical construct behind it was. It was left for other physicists, theorists, to use Einstein's theory of general relativity to explain what Hubble observed in the context of what is now called cosmological redshift. Ready for the next question? All right, our next question is from Kushal, who asks, how can quantum tunneling make neutron stars into iron stars? So it's not, again, clear what neutron material uh, actually is like. We've never inspected neutron material. Neutron stars really only have their properties measured in bulk or in the aggregate and not in, and not in any detail. However, we know that the endpoint of a star, a massive star's evolution, is to create the heaviest elements. So neutron stars uh, are the endpoint of massive star evolution, and the precursors to the neutron star would have been a star where all the heavy elements have been created up to, new, up to iron. And so there was an iron core uh, of great density, denser than water, denser than lead, for example, uh, but of course, a plasma, because it had a temperature of billions of Kelvin, a very strange state of matter. Now, when a neutron star is created, um, a reverse process of beta decay takes place, where neutrons merge with electrons to produce neutrons. And so, in a sense, it's not, it's not appropriate to talk about a neutron star as being any particular chemical elements, because chemical elements are, of course, by definition, based on the number of protons in a nucleus and the equal number of electrons orbiting them. So neutron stars do not have any chemical elements attached to them. However, their precursors were indeed objects, in many cases, which were primarily iron. Ready for the next question? All right. Um, our next question is from a live viewer, uh, John Canader who asks, um, lots of different scientists have explanations for Fermi's paradox. What is your explanation for Fermi, Fermi's paradox? So, um, indeed, Fermi's, we'll just frame the question here. Fermi's paradox, and I, I actually don't prefer that framing of it. I prefer Fermi's question. Uh, because a paradox implies something that's internally inconsistent to two premises that are in opposition to each other. And I don't think that's the case with the Fermi paradox or question. Framed as a question, Fermi's question is, where are they? Uh, given sufficient time and the chemical ingredients required to create life in the universe and a huge abundance of locations where that life could exist, and a large amount of time for that life to evolve intelligence, technology, and space travel, the question becomes, where are those intelligent civilizations traveling through space? Since we are being able to do it relatively recently, it's unlikely that we would be the first, goes the argument, or the most advanced. And therefore, Fermi's question, where are they, arises. Um, it's a legitimate question, if not a paradox. And I guess my preferred answer is just that the parts of the evolution where intelligent, where rather biology turns to intelligence and then turns to technology 
and turns the ability to leave your environment with space travel could be extremely rare. It could be a very unlikely or small probability outcome of having biology. Most biology in the universe is likely to be microbial, and I suspect that most living worlds in the universe are microbial and stay that way for billions of years and perhaps forever, or are stillborn and don't even have biology at all. So if the transitions to intelligence, technology, and space travel are very low probability events, then we could be very isolated in space and time. And therefore, it's not unreasonable that we haven't been visited just because the nearest intelligent aliens or civilizations or space travelers are very far away, which is to say thousands or tens of thousands of light years. And the galaxy is very thinly sprinkled with intelligent civilizations. In that case, uh, there's no paradox. And the answer to Fermi's question is just that they're very rare. That's my preferred answer. Ready for the next question. Excellent. Thank you, Chris. Um, so we have about five minutes left for questions. So it probably will get us through one, maybe two questions. And we've got a ton of great ones. Um, so I will pick the, the next one, which is, if gravity is a property of space-time itself, can it exist without matter and energy? Um, that's a good question. It, gravity is not necessarily a property of space-time itself, however. So the, the, I think the premise of the question may not be true. Um, it does seem that gravity depends on having mass and or energy in play. Uh, it is indeed possible to have space-time that's devoid of energy and matter. In the theoretical physics or relativ relativity community, this is called de Sitter space, <clears throat> after Wilhelm de Sitter, uh, a famous German theoretical physicist in the early part of the 20th century. So there are sort of theoretical constructs of space-time that are devoid of matter and energy and where there is no gravity. They're essentially empty space-time. And those empty space-times can have behaviors, or they can be expanding or static, or they can have torsion, they can be rotating. There are all sorts of things can be possible with these empty space-times. The interesting stuff does happen, however, when there's gravity and when mass and energy are in the universe or in the space-time. So the things are actually distinct in that sense. Ready for the next question. How far can our radio signals go before they become unintelligible? Um, this is an interesting question because it relates to SETI, the search for intelligent life in the universe. We are trying to listen for intelligent radio signals from hypothetical civilizations out in space with our radio telescopes. We've also done a few transmission experiments of beaming or pulsing radio waves into space. It's also clear that our planet is leaking radio emission into space because we have radio transmitters, megawatt radio transmitters for a classical FM radio station. The biggest transmitters are hundreds of megawatts, of course, and that those radio waves leak out into space and travel broadly through space. And so some people have pointed out that even passively, SETI can operate because uh, even without any intention to communicate, a civilization will betray its existence by the leakage of radio radiation. I was once uh, asked to calculate this because someone, uh, a radio producer, called me and said, well, I Love Lucy should be just passing out through uh, a bubble of space that's now 60 
light years across because or 60 light years in radius because that's how many years ago I Love Lucy was broadcast and surely the aliens in the large number of planets in that sphere could have seen I Love Lucy. Well, in terms of the passive radio communication, if you do the math, even though those radio signals were pretty powerful when they were created, as they leak into space and disperse by the inverse square law, they very rapidly diminish in strength. And it turns out that before our most powerful radio signals from transmitters um, leaking out into space go past the edge of the solar system, past the orbit of Neptune, they have diminished in intensity below the level of the microwave background radio radiation. In other words, cosmic noise. So they are completely undetectable far beyond the solar system. So that's the passive communication. Now the active communication would involve beaming uh, uh, the, or pulsing, beaming and pulsing, which is to say focusing the radio waves and transmitting them toward particular targets rather than just letting them leak out in all directions. Now those transmissions could indeed be seen at a much larger distance. If you do the hypothetical reverse experiment, we could detect uh, an Arecibo-type radio dish. Arecibo is the largest radio dish, 300 meters across, has very powerful klystron radio transmitters, and it does beam radio energy out into space, and it can be done to particular targets. So if you do the thought experiment, we could detect the equivalent of an Arecibo technology at distances of a few thousand light years out into space. So the difference between passive radio emission leaking into space and directionally pulsed radio emission uh, being sent into space is, is dramatic. And so our sphere of influence and our sphere of listening is actually quite large when we talk about our biggest uh, pulsed and focused radio transmissions. Uh, I think that'll do for today. I'm appreciative that you all joined, and I hadn't know there were a lot of unanswered questions. We'll try and keep up the frequency of these to be at least every two weeks while I'm in London. I'm not doing too much traveling while I'm here. So thank you for participating, and we'll be back with you in a couple of weeks. Excellent. Thank you, Chris, uh, and thank you, everyone, for joining us. Have a great day. Thank you for listening. This has been a bonus episode of The Starfield. For more Q&A sessions with Dr. Chris Impey, head to Astronomy State of the Art. Or for other great space-based content from our team, check out Active Galactic videos on YouTube. This podcast is produced by Hannah Marker through partnership with Dr. Matthew Wenger, Dr. Chris Impey, and the University of Arizona. <laughs>